Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Welcome to Healthy Tales, where we discuss current animal-related news, interview experts in specific areas of veterinary medicine, and discuss product information for pet owners in our Product of the Week segment. I'm your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, and with me today are my three amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy, veterinary technician Tim Hayes, and Dr. Kyle Morano. It's nice to see you guys this morning. Good morning to be here. We have a great show for you today. We will get to know Dr. Rosemary Nisnik and talk all about holistic medicine in the veterinary world. After that, I will discuss a product every dog family needs, but does not usually trust themselves too well with. We are so happy to have all our listeners here with us today and downloading the podcast version of our show. We are so grateful for your continued support, and we love sharing our thoughts and expertise with you each week. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us to share. We love your feedback. You are welcome and encouraged to email me anytime at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. But first, the news in our first segment, the Daily Meow. Dr. McCarthy, that one's for you, okay? <laughs> Appreciate it. And I'm going to let you know, guys, I think that one is the best one I've had this, you know, in these past eight weeks, okay? That's, I think that's one we're going to stick with, okay? All right, Kyle, what do you got for us today? All right, we're going to call this one to spay or not to spay. So there, we looked at an article summary um, talking about estrogen and how it relates to certain types of cancer. And I'll tell you, this one really gets off the deep end. So I'm going to try to summarize <laughs> it because there's a lot that goes into this. Um, so basically, University of Pennsylvania looked into um, different types of cancer and how they relate to estrogen. So est- certain types of these cancers are going to have estrogen receptors. So that means that estrogen is a, plays a part in how quickly they develop or don't develop, as well as which dogs with these types of cancer, how they reacted when they were spayed or if they weren't spayed. There's a lot of different details that go into this. Um, I'll summarize the kind of the first part and then kind of go into, well, what do we do with this information? So basically what they found was that if, so in certain types of cancer, if the dog was not spayed and then subsequently spayed after the surgery, those dogs tended to do better. So longer um, disease-free intervals, which basically means they weren't sick um, or did not have relapse. Um, and then the, some of the nastier types of cancer did not also seem to develop. So basically, their theory was estrogen played some degree of role in a protective way for some of these other types of cancer. It goes into like a lot of different details as far as um, estrogen receptors, and it gets really, really nerdy. And even for a huge nerd like myself, I found myself a little bit um, run around here. So then it comes down to the question, which really is what I think most of, uh, most of our listeners are gonna, going to wonder is, well, all right, that's great. That's a really fancy study. What do I do? Um, and then it gets into to spay or not to spay. And we can open just slightly the can of worms. And I think there's a lot of effects that are related here. And I will somewhat defer to my, my colleagues here. I work emergency medicine, so I don't, I don't do spays um, unless they're more, more emergent, like an infected uterus. So we run into all these issues relating to, okay, the benefits of spaying. Control of pet population. There is a, a noted improvement in control of 
incidence of mammary cancer and, and, um, and a couple other things that will be beneficial. Then when we look at not spaying dogs and the effect of estrogen, there are some benefits orthopedically. The growth plates will close at the right time, um, lower incidence of hip dysplasia and ACL tears in certain breeds. Um, so, so we get really a, kind of a complex picture as far as when to spay and not to spay. So that was the article. I, I thought it was really interesting, and I think it creates a good discussion and dialogue, especially for general practitioners as, as they interact with pet owners of, should we spay? When should we spay? And what are the risks that we're willing to take? Again, yeah, of course, right, Kyle? Of course, estrogen plays the most complicated role in veterinary medicine. I guess, I guess I say, why wouldn't it, right? I guess, again, we're all hey. going to have to try <laughs> and spay these pets. I think we're supposed to just spay these pets basically as late as possible, like, or, you know, or my assumption is we're going to have to be very specific. There's going to be a specific window of time that allows pets to have as much estrogen as possible before they're spayed or go into heat. I just, again, I love how they complicate the matter, but don't really give any guidance. They're just, yeah. They just give us more information to make yeah. these much more complicated, all right? Again, which is fine. And, we, and it's just, it really is up to us to kind of leave it to interpretation. So to spare, not to spay, exactly right, Kyle. It sounds like to me, again, it's like, okay, yes, yes, spay, but if they develop mammary cancer, then maybe give them estrogen therapy. I, <laughs> that was the only thing. Again, again, I wasn't sure. I didn't know if I was supposed to interpret it that way, um, but that, that's kind of like what I'm, what I'm kind of getting from this because, again, again, it sounds like to me estrogen plays a really important role in this like preventing cancer if you get it, preventing it from spreading. And so I'm like, okay, well, then maybe we can do something like that because you're right. Spaying these pets later, though, we have other benefits of having exactly what you said, like, you know, better growth development, especially in our joints. And so that, that makes things really, really tough as far as, again, weighing the pros and cons. And when we try to explain this to owners, it just gets so yeah. caught up in the weeds, you know. And so that's why I have to interpret this as I think this is the best time, gives the best development and prevents maybe, you know, mammary cancer and so that so that's those are the things that we are um trying to deal with and so i also love how they said in this article they kind of talked about how these types of cancers play like a um play a very they, it's a good model for human mammary cancer except that it looks like it's kind of the opposite <laughs> yeah in dogs. And so i got really confused but i thought again it's a great article it adds more to the pot of us you know just making things a lot more complicated you know and for us to try to interpret how best to go about when to spay or when not to spay but that this is a good article because we, we uh, yes kyle we see this every day you do not all right but yeah. we definitely see this every day and so and we have to try to break this down for owners and give them more information to complicate the matter. Right. I feel like for being such a routine procedure, space neuters are one of the most complicated yes. <laughs> things to explain because there is so many different factors and we don't have a straightforward answer of what's the best time to spay and neuter. It changes all the time. But I will say for the pets that I've seen that have mammary tumors, um, they are ones that either were spayed later in life or are currently not spayed. And I feel like those that were spayed that were previously spayed and I've seen mammary tumors are, I haven't really seen a higher incidence in my small sample, sample size of metastasis to other areas. And those pets live for years still living after we remove those mammary cancers. So, yeah, yeah I totally agree. I 
No, I think I've had a very, very similar experience too. And I think a lot of times, like if we get to these things early and soon enough, I agree. Right. I think, I think again, we're, we're, we're tremendously helping out in that, in that regards. So, all right, good deal. So Tim, what do you got for us today, buddy? Uh, I have research from the University of Guelph, and I can't imagine I'm pronouncing that properly, but I, that's what we're going to go with. Um, so the Guelphians did this research, and uh, what they were kind of looking to see was, can people measure out food portions properly for their pets? And, and what they found was, was more or less a resounding no. Um, they, they were a little optimistic in this research in that they got together a bunch of different measuring cups of different sizes, different styles, and uh, brought people in and, and you know, kind of let them see if they could measure out portions properly. And why I say that that is optimistic is that people do not use measuring cups in my <laughs> experience. They use scoops. And if you ask them how much is in the scoop, they have no idea. They don't know where the scoop came from. I don't know where the scoop came from. It's a scoop of just indeterminate origin. <laughs> yep. uh, it holds an indeterminate amount of food. It, it's not a great way of measuring. Um, and so in this research, what they found is that while some people are underfeeding, uh, a good majority of the people end up overfeeding um, by as much as 152%. Extraordinary <laughs> amount of food. Um, I think it shows in our population, though. <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's the, you know, this research was wildly unnecessary because they, they could have called me. <laughs> they could have called literally any animal hospital in the world and spoke to literally any employee. And we yeah, could, I'd like to know who's underfeeding their pet. <laughs> <Yeah. seen. laughs> um, this this, this does not come as a surprise to us on any level. Um, and what I find, you know, like I said, there, there's the scoop, but then the other big issue is when people say that they're, they're feeding a cup a day or a cup a meal, they don't generally mean a, a cup. They mean a red solo cup. That is hands down. It's gotta be like the, the second biggest use of the red solo cup is making fat dogs. The yep. solo corporation wanted honest marketing there. Every package of, of solo cups would show a bunch of teenagers playing beer pong. And then in the background, there'd be just a morbid, <laughs> morbidly obese dog. <laughs> uh, I don't, they probably wouldn't sell a lot of cups, but it, it would be accurate. Um, and so I, while I agree that a, a red solo cup is a cup, it is not in fact one cup by measurement. It generally tends to be two cups. So just, just so that's on the record for anybody listening, your red solo cup, you are overfeeding your dog. Um, the other solution that they put forth, which I think is, is a bit much, is using a, a digital scale. And I'm not going to argue that that's not accurate, but we're not cutting heroin here. Like, let's not get crazy. Like, we don't need this level of accuracy. What people need to do is get themselves a small one-cup measuring cup. Just, it just, that's all you need. You can talk to your veterinarian. They will, we get free ones from Royal Canaan, from Hills. We're more than happy to give you them, but get one of them, measure out the correct portion. Meal feeding is, is very beneficial. It's not gonna work for every pet, but it is very beneficial to do two meals a day, three meals a day, kind of whatever works for your schedule. Um, and, and this is important. Um, we joke, but heavy dogs have a lot of health issues that come with it. And you can very easily help this by just measuring food properly. It's it's really 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 straightforward. So please go out and get a measuring cup. And, and yeah. Oh my god, yeah, Tim. I mean, I agree. This is this is one of the biggest problems that we have in veterinary medicine: trying to get people one just to use a measuring cup. 
And now even the ones that have those measuring cups are not accurate. I mean, my gosh, this is, this is a nightmare. I was like, how is this possible? But you're right. They're definitely probably using a different cup. All right. This is, again, I, I will still have owners obviously measure things out, but to have them to start weighing food, having them weigh food, I guess, again, it is a good idea, but it is like, I don't know how practical. All right. It was super concerning um, that people were using measuring cups and we're still just off. You know, with what they were feeding their pets. I mean, this is really hard to screw up. You know, the the only thing um, is that with weighing food is we also have to remember is going to be it's still quite complicated because not all food technically like so when you measure out one cup right of satiety food it's definitely not the same as if you are if you measure out one cup of high energy food and so if if owners are getting different you know different types of food, they, they, they really still have to like, when they're measuring it out, it, the calorie, you know, density of them is going to be different. So that again, weighing it is still going to be something where you have to figure out how much they should technically have. So again, that, that makes this a little bit more complicated <laughs> as far as even weighing the food. So that makes these a little bit still quite complicated. All right. But the, at least weighing the food is also just another way possibly to get them to be more accurate once they know ideally how much, they should be feeding, you know? So it, again, it gives them another tool to kind of help in this, you know, pet obesity epidemic. And so, but good. Yeah. You know what, you know, I'll echo what Tim said. And um, I know Purina about 10 years ago put out a study as far as obesity and its effects on um, lifespan and all this stuff. And I think the major summary was uh, two years. The difference was two years of life. Um, so a patient who has a proper weight and body condition is going to, on average, live two years longer. And if you think about a Labrador, you know, they're going to live 10, 12 years. Um, you add two years to that, and that's, that is a huge amount of time, let alone the quality of life factor with orthopedics being the main one, um, lower incidence of diabetes. I mean, I know a lot of people, we know the benefits of it, um, but just it was a stark, stark study to show that difference. Um, the other thing that I thought, Tim, when, when, I, when I read this is, all right, if Canada is going 150% over, America does everything even better than Canada. So how much are we overfeeding, right? USA, baby. Good deal. All right, Elaine, what do you got for us today? All right, so my article was entitled Domestic Cats Kill 2 to 10 Times More Wildlife Than Their Wild Predator Counterparts. Um, so hunting by pets ha can have a big impact on the local wildlife population. So think birds, small mammals, that sort of thing. Most of the effect is around the cat's home. They estimated about a hundred meter radius, uh, which is about a few gardens on either side of the cat's house. They collected GPS cat tracking data and prey capture reports from 925 pet cats. Mostly they're from the US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, they found that they f killed fewer prey per day than a wild animal because they are fed cat food, but the range that they were hunting was so small that it seemed to have a larger effect on that local on that local prey because it was so concentrated in that area. The, they estimate that cats in North America kill between 10 to 30 billion wildlife animals per year. That's oh, crazy. It is. <laughs> this clearly will hinder the biodiversity in the area. Um, and yeah, I, it doesn't even account for like feral cats. So these are just cats that you actually can track. These are the feral cats Household out cats. there, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But my uh, family used to have a cat named Mojo that loved to go outside. And uh, 
he, we had, we put in a cat door, which was the worst mistake of our lives. He would bring in so many creatures. It would be, you know, the typical mouse, bird, that sort of thing. He also brought in a bat one time that we had to chase around, get out of our house. (laughs) A juvenile possum he brought in. My dad went into the bathroom to take a shower and there was a possum in the bathroom. Yeah, it is crazy what uh, just domestic cats will do. Um, And then, of course, the vet side of me is like, think of all those parasites that these cats can be getting and passing on to humans and bringing fleas. Um, So definitely want to make sure if you are letting your cat outside, definitely keep them on some sort of prevention as far as flea control, intestinal parasites. Um, But then also think about the impacts that your kitty is having on on the diversity of of the species in your area. If you guys like bird watching, you're uh, not going to see many of those. (laughs) You're not going to see many. But yeah, it's kind of crazy. Oh, it is. And I think the the one thing I got from this too was that I think we're going to have to make a harder push for keeping cats indoors, okay? At the very least, get some kind of like enclosed animal sanctuary for these cats, all right? (laughs) If you're going to let them go outside. I I can definitely see Dr. McCarthy's cat, okay? If anybody knows Rory, okay, killing half of the wildlife population, okay? (laughs) This cat, this cat, Dr. McCarthy's cat is a terror, okay? Again, I'm pretty sure, (laughs) because again, when Rory came in, all right, Dr. McCarthy's these cats. I'm pretty sure Rory wanted to hunt me uh, a few times when she came in. So again, I, I just don't feel safe. All right. So again, the crazy thing about these cats are just they're just killing two for sport. I mean, again, these cats yeah. are being fed inside, and they only they just really want to eat, and they eat what we have inside. But they're just killing for sport. And so, oh my gosh. So, and I remember too, McCarthy, my cat growing up. Always bringing in little trophies, okay? Yeah, Mice, yeah. birds, locusts. She loved locusts. And so, yeah. So, again, I think we have to try. Again, this article is going to make me much more. Like, please, people, please keep your cats all right inside. Just if you can, okay? Because I think that's going to be the best for our wildlife diversity and, and you know, keep us to be able to watch birds still, okay? Locusts, where, where were you growing up? Like ancient <laughs> Egypt? <laughs> Albuquerque, man. We got to see those locusts, all right? So, good deal, guys. So, all right. So, lastly, I, I just wanted to make, mention this article because uh, Purdue University put out this little research paper. Well, up. That's right. Purdue University, all right, coming out with some good stuff here, helping me out personally, okay? All right. That some breeds have hidden coat colors, okay, and other traits. And so, um, Purdue teamed up with uh, Wisdom Health or the Wisdom Panel and analyzed data that had been you know, collected for, from the development of canine DNA tests. They showed that some of the breed coat color varieties were not, um, were not due to improper breeding, but rather to gene variants. And so uh, then they give the example of fault alleles in, in, in some of these pets, like the, just like Rottweilers, German Shepherds, um, with regard to the, like, the brown hair coat color. Um, and then they just did like some Weimaraners and long haired um, just in their alleles. And so, so I got really excited, guys, because I am the worst at guessing some of these dog breeds, okay? And guess what, people? It's not my fault, okay? There are all these genetic mutants out there making these all dogs look so different, okay? So, so good on Purdue, okay, for helping back me up, okay, and for letting me know that it's really it's not my fault. And so it's their fault, Allele's fault, okay, that I can't guess, all right, these certain dog breeds, okay? So I love nerdy jokes like that, all right? <laughs> so good on Purdue, all right, finally coming out with some good research to help me when owners get upset. Like, what's my dog? What breed is my dog? I have no idea. Okay, all right, get that DNA test. 
It is funny when they do those DNA tests and it comes back with something completely unexpected. Oh, when it's my... like a, we had a 60 pound dog the other day come in as a Great Dane, and we're like, I don't think that's a Great Dane. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, the DNA test said it was. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the DNA test comes back. I mean, that's, right? you know, that's the Bible. That's it. That's what exactly. it is. Exactly. Can't right? disprove it. All right. Thanks, guys, for keeping us update in animal news, everyone. All right. We, when we get back, we'll be talking with Dr. Rosemary Nisnik. We're so happy to have her here. Tell us more about veterinary holistic medicine. Stick around, guys. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. We have an ever-growing pet population in this country, and it's only getting larger. Not only is the pet population growing, but pet owners' decisions about how they want their pets being treated is also becoming more diverse. Many owners are looking for different ways to keep their pets comfortable and looking for treatments with fewer side effects. Integrative medicine and holistic veterinary care have been gaining significant popularity over the years for their whole patient health approach. Holistic veterinary medicine can cover a significant number of modalities or subclassifications such as acupuncture, botanical medicine, chiropractic medicine, homeopathic medicine, massage therapy, and nutraceuticals. Holistic medicine is humane and minimally invasive, and it focuses on education, empathy, and love. It focuses on treating the whole pet, including their environment, diet, and lifestyle, rather than just treating the symptoms. Holistic medicine has become a great option for owners to help treat very complicated conditions, especially in our aging population who suffer from chronic pain. So today, we're very pleased to welcome the wonderful Dr. Rosemary Nisnik to our show. Dr. Rosemary Nisnik attended the Pennsylvania State University in University Park, Pennsylvania, and obtained an undergraduate degree in animal biosciences. After attending one year of graduate school and working as a veterinarian technician, she was accepted to the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine. During veterinary school, she participated in the shock trauma team, colic team, and the Alpha Phi veterinary fraternity. After graduating, she worked as an associate and relief small animal veterinarian in numerous veterinary day practices and emergency hospitals in the Northeast United States always interested in alternative and complementary treatments and medications, she researched and recommended natural supplements for her patients and redirected the focus of her veterinary career to the field of holistic veterinary medicine. She attended the Qi Institute for Traditional Chinese Medicine Mixed Animal Acupuncture course and earned her certificates in veterinary acupuncture. She also attended courses in Chinese herbology food therapy, and Tao massage, and she enrolled at the Healing Oasis Wellness Center to learn animal chiropractic care, where she earned certification in VMST animal chiropractic. In 2015, she founded Harmony Rose Animal Wellness, her house call integrative veterinary practice, 
to serve her clients and patients' holistic veterinary care in the comfort of their home environment. And this is where her practice is to this day. A strong advocate for organized veterinary medicine, Dr. Deniznik served in various positions on the Westchester, Rockland County, New York, VMA, the Lee County, Pennsylvania, VMA, the board of the Chicago Veterinary Medical Association, and was the president of the Chicago Veterinary Medical Association in 2016. Currently, she is the president of the Chicago Veterinary Medical Foundation for the second year term. In September of 2020, she will be inducted as a three-year board member position of the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association. She is a small animal acupuncture teaching assistant for the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society and the Chi Institute of, of TCDM. She continues her studies in herbal medicine, food therapy, and in TUA. And she is pursuing certification in hospice and palliative care veterinary medicine, which was inspired by her mother. Dr. Niznik enjoys several hobbies, including skiing and teaching skiing, and she obtained an amateur radio license to honor her father's memory. She shares a five-acre farm and home with her husband, Chip, a Burmese mountain dog, Grace, and two rescue cats, Wendy and Velma. Welcome, Dr. Nisnik, and thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, where did you grow up? Oh, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. I grew up in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, a small awesome. town on the northeastern part of the state. And so did you guys have a lot of animals growing up there in, when you were there? Personally, no. I had a dog, a few dogs, and a cat. Just a few, a hamster, yeah. yeah. Who, who was who was that? Um, who was that dog on your on your website that you're holding? Oh, that was my current dog, uh, Bernie's Mountain Dog Grace. That's her as a puppy, and that picture is seven years old. So oh. I, I <laughs> nice, <it. laughs> nice, very super super cute. And so, really, what what made you want to become a veterinarian then? I, you know, I hate to be a cliche, but I'm one of those people who just always wanted to be a veterinarian since grade school. Yeah. When I went back to my high school reunions. People came up to me and said, I remember when you stood up in grade school and told us you're going to be a veterinarian. And they say they were so happy that I actually became a veterinarian. And, you know, it, was just, it must have been genetic, a calling. My mom was a nurse. Um, I, right. Enjoyed medicine, but I didn't, I didn't really like sick people. Um, mm -hmm. I would live near a hospital. When I went to the hospital, the whole environment didn't really, you know, I just felt uncomfortable, felt too clean, too, just too, I don't know, I just didn't, just didn't like the hospital environment. And I just was attracted to veterinary medicine. And at that time, in your young mind, when you're in high school, I thought, well, I could own my own hospital and I could be my own boss. So that was also attractive. Very cool. Very cool. So when you went to um, undergrad, is that kind of where you knew, like, again, like you, you, you had your focus on what you wanted to do and you kind of, um, yeah, you know, pre, did pre-med kind of thing? Yeah, I was just straight, you know, veterinary medicine, majored in animal bioscience. Some people in other majors, that was funny because I wasn't, you know, didn't know a lot of what was going on in the world or different sciences or different majors because you're just focused veterinary medicine you know, straight line, animal biosciences are major for all the pre-veterinary students. It, it was in the College of Agriculture. Yeah. So I had to take agronomy, plant science, animal science. It had a little mix of everything, but it was a lot heavy in the sciences. 
so that you could get your prerequisites done for veterinary school. Now, you grew up, though, you said in Pennsylvania, right? Yes. But how did you get to Georgia then? Because you, you, the, uh, you went to the College of the University of uh, Georgia, right, for vet, vet, vet school? Yeah, I went to veterinary school because at that time, when I was during my undergrad, at that time they said you can only go to the veterinary school in your state, and our state veterinary school is the University of Pennsylvania, which was in Philadelphia, is Ivy League, so it's very difficult to get in. You had to have research, backing, a 4.0, very competitive. It was also, at that time, it was expensive when regular vet schools were two or $3,000 a year. Tuition the University of Pennsylvania was 11000 They warned us it wasn't a safe place for women to go. The students oh, had to have a German Shepherd dog to take them back and forth to school, and they had kennels for your dog. Then uh, the large animal section was farther out of town. So to me, it just didn't appeal to me, and I was kind of nervous going there. So luckily, my senior year, the veterinary school application process started to open up where you could apply to different schools. So I started applying to different state schools, you know, Purdue, Wisconsin, Tennessee, and I was waitlisted the first year. And so then I next year I became a graduate student. And my roommate, Kate McDuffie, who's actually a holistic veterinarian, she went to Georgia and she got into vet school and I knew her grades. And I said, well, she could get in. And I said, okay, I could get in. <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so I moved to Georgia, gave up Pennsylvania residency, moved to Georgia, worked for a year as a technician, and then got into several different schools. So, and then I said, well, I'm in Georgia. I'm just going to stay here. Very nice. You would, you know, that's my rival though, you know, being a Florida grad, all right? All right, Georgia's our big, big rival, but that's okay. It's a very good school. So what was your experience like at University of Georgia? You know, I loved it. Like, you brought the one aspect of the whole Southeastern Conference football. That was oh, a yeah. tradition. Um, it was nice to get out of your home state and your home area and still be in a small town, but it was in the South. It was warmer. There was no snow. People moved a little slower. You, my roommate said, you still have to dress up. You know, this is the South. Women put makeup on and dress up <laughs> yes. nice to go to the bank and run errands. You can't go to the state, you know, right. T-shirt. Um, people were friendlier. It was sunny. Um, we went to country music events. You know, just the whole experience. We just seen a different part of the country. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to have just a well-rounded experience. You know, you can stay in your own hometown. But I kind of had a little, you know, wanderlust and a little bug to, to just be adventurous and go to a different part of the country. And, you know, I met a lot of friends. You know, I still considered a Yankee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Being from, I'm from, again, from the South. So I grew up in Florida. You know, I, I moved up to Illinois. I met my wife brought her back to Florida because I wanted her to see the South, you know, and so, uh, and after six years of being in Florida, she was like, okay, you're done with that school. I'm ready to move back. But again, it was, it was a great experience. And I, I do, I love the South. Obviously my family and everything is from there. And so again, like, it sounds like you had a really good experience. Um, and so, uh, and, and one of your friends though, I guess was pretty influential but in, in you. Cause again, you really, cause how did you get into holistic medicine? It sounds like maybe your, your friend kind of, I don't know if they had a big influence on you um, in getting into holistic medicine. A little, there's a, I think there's eyes on draw when you, you know, you do conventional medicine for so many years and then you think what else is in there that I could do or offer patients. You get frustrated when, you know, for arthritis, we just had the old fashioned butte painkillers. Right. 
um, you know, just rest your dog or here's your steroids. And then, then, then we say, oh, here's a new supplement, glucosamine or glycoflex or um, like a green muscle supplement or, um, you know, we could do exercises. So you were always looking for something different. So for some reason I was attracted to that. What else can you do for your patients? So I would always say, oh, look, I could do, you know, do, a, you know, took a little acupuncture seminar, learned a few points you know, looked at some um, different supplements you could use. There's, it was always nagging in the back of my mind. I should do the acupuncture course or do something else, but, you know, the expense and the commitment, I wasn't sure. And then I heard my roommate went to – I teased my roommate that I always follow her in life, that she went to Penn State, she went to Georgia, then she went to acupuncture, and now it's my turn to go to follow her. <laughs> nice. And she went the year ahead of me, and I was a little upset that she didn't ask me to go with her, but I went the following year. And um, went to Chi Institute in the same school that she did. So good. And so there's so how much extra education really is there to be you know to really get involved in becoming a holistic veterinarian? What what more education do you, have you had to do? Had to do? Well, you know, a lot of it's reading on your own, possibly following another holistic vet and asking what like what are you using this modality for? Why? Then you have to decide. You know, what is your? They say what's your gateway modality? What are you? do first because there's always a first modality you do and then you kind of go down the rabbit hole of holistic medicine so for me it's acupuncture because I was more exposed to it I knew people were doing it you know I kind of wanted to know what it was all about um, what's these meridians what's these acupuncture point I want to see Dr. Shea speak so you have to invest in the first course could be anywhere from about like seven to ten thousand dollars if you oh, wow. pick acupuncture or chiropractic or rehab you expect to spend at least like $10,000 and possibly six months in the course on and off weekend or even a whole week and then another six months to get your case reports done. Oh, wow. Okay, good. Yeah, that sounds, that definitely sounds like a lot of work. And so, yeah, and that is great. I mean, man, that is definitely expensive, but I mean, obviously very well worth it. I'm sure, I'm sure what was your experience like at the Chi Institute? I loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was great. I, I wanted to go to see Dr. Shea speak because he has such a wonderful reputation in bringing acupuncture and veterinary acupuncture to this country. So I'd never want to miss out on hearing him speak. And I decided to go to the Chi Institute because it was in Florida. There's a campus. He taught the Chinese acupuncture and I figured they invented it. So I should go learn it from him. And then there's other schools of thought on acupuncture and I could always learn that later. Um, I actually went down there after working at ER shift and I didn't sleep the next morning, just got on the plane, went to Chi, and I almost didn't get up my first day of school. They, my roommates had to wake me up and say, hey, can you go to class today? <laughs> my first day of school. And the first, the first session, I, you, know, you say you want to do it, and then you get there, and it's a Chinese medicine, and if you're conventional, it's a different way of thinking. It's circular knowledge. It doesn't flow, and there's all this new terminology, and I didn't read ahead of time. I just showed up. And said, oh, I'll show up and see what happens. I took the equine class with the, with the small animal. I was starting to learn a lot of points. I was an older student, so I kind of, in the middle of the class, I kind of got a little stressed because I was like, okay, I just want to go. My brain's full. I kind of had enough today, but, you know, you're a student. You had to stay in lab. And I came out of there a little, like, you know, just your, your brain was kind of full. And you had this knowledge, but you didn't understand it. And I was like, I'm not really sure if I'm going to come back next time. Or maybe that was my way of dealing with the stress, like, maybe I just won't come back. 
And I went home and studied it and read my books and read ahead. And I came back the next session and then you're hooked because then you understand it and you have your friends and you start learning it and it starts becoming easier. And I love Dr. Shea. I love the TAs. You're in Florida. It's sunny. It's happy. When you go to the Chi Institute, there's an environment of just calmness and serenity and learning that you just, you just go there and you just relax. You're studying and it's difficult, but you're just, you're almost, you're also having fun. I mean, I've seen the pictures and I've seen like a lot of the, it does, it looks really nice and it does look extremely like, um, yeah, like you're, you are learning in paradise <laughs> it's just so, because it is so beautiful there, you know? And so at least that's all the pictures and the videos that they show us, <laughs> you know, of it. so it does, it looks great. We should tell him that's his tagline. We should say learning in paradise should be his new tagline. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> and so there are, there are different holistic uh, medicine. There's, all, there's different holistic schools, though, other than the Chi Institute. Is there other ones that people can go to? Yeah. There, you know, holistic medicine is just a big umbrella term, but there are different schools for acupuncture. There are different schools for chiropractic. There's mm. even different schools for learning the um, Chinese herbal medicine or Western herbal medicine. So it's a, we usually tell people what resonates with you, what do you feel like you have to learn, maybe read, um, talk to students who went there, read some of the books that come out of the school. A lot, also consider where's the class being held because, like you said, it's a financial investment. And if you, you know, I've traveled to Florida, the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society has different locations of their course, and the location could have been closer at that time, I would have had to go to Portland, Oregon. So sometimes oh, wow. the finances of where you have to travel can influence it. When I took my chiropractic course, I went to Sturdivant, Wisconsin, which is about 10 miles from where I live, to learn chiropractic. And that was heavily neurology-based and had a good reputation. But then also your, the travel expenses play into a little bit than going to Florida or going to, um, I think it was Kansas City, where the chiropractic course was take um, was also taking place so if I could save money on travel expenses that that helps too yeah and so you we have all these different modalities in like like you said is this kind of holistic is just kind of an umbrella term which one is the one that you know that you feel like most connected with or that you feel that you provide the best you know is it acupuncture is it chiropractic or is it some other uh, modality in, in within holistic medicine I like the acupuncture. That was my first, I guess, love or first draw to holistic medicine or, you know, they say the complementary and alternative medicine where I learned the Chinese acupuncture. Then I, my decision was to learn the acupuncture from um, Dr. Shea with the traditional Chinese veterinary medicine. And then I was conflicted to go to IVIS because they also teach a Western acupuncture, which talks about research and um, the approach of the points are proven points that work for certain conditions with using the conventional diagnosis. But I, my rationale was to go and take some of their continuing education courses, which I ended up being a teaching assistant for IVIS. Oh, so nice. I to their system. And um, then you, you know, then also now for acupuncture, the latest thing is um, Daniel, um, Daniel um, Cohen. He wrote a book, The Spark in the Machine and the Body Uncharted, or The Uncharted Body. And it talks about the embryological basis for acupuncture and why certain energy levels match up and why you're using certain points 
along with other points, which sometimes you say acupuncture, some things don't make sense, and you're like, I wonder why these points are used for that condition. And sometimes there's a short answer, but then when you dig deeper, you find out, oh, there's another reason on a different level. You know, it's like peeling an, an onion where you throw in the first layer, where your student, the teacher tells you, oh, this is why you use a point, and then you read a little bit more, and then as you dig deeper, you're like, oh, those points are, those body systems are connected embryologically, and that's why that point is used for that disease. So to me, it's just fascinating. There's always something with acupuncture. Very cool. And and so... Um, where, where do you know, like, where does holistic, um, medicine, where does it like really uh, like originate from? Part of it was different, different schools. You know, the acupuncture has thousands of years of research and experiential support for why these points work because in, in ancient China, that's all that they had was, you know, they didn't have disease, you know, conventional medicine. They didn't have blood machines, x-rays. MRI, so they learned this point would help this condition, um, or if you put these points in combination, it could help treat another condition. So, you know, acupuncture has a basis in China over, you know, several thousands of years. Um, chiropractic um, came about in the 1800s, and herbal medicine was around, you know, also for thousands of years because that was just going out into your garden and figuring out what herbs would help, what plants would help you treat a, a you know, specific condition. Cool. What is, uh, what would you say, what is traditional Chinese medicine exactly? If you'd explain well, it to somebody. Chinese medicine, um, that's where you, you know, you have where the, the, the Chinese, they look at how the body is in relation to the environment. So what they say is that you are in the environment and your body is, subjected to changes in the, in the um, weather and into your environment. So that could affect you in helping you and supporting your health or it could also lead to causing disease. So what the traditional Chinese medicine does, it looks upon the body and says, how, what's, what's not in balance and then how can we get it back in balance? By okay, balancing awesome. yin, yang, um, are you too hot, are you too cold? Is there something affecting the outside of your body? the inside of your body, is this a condition that's causing um, you to have excess systems or you're too hot or you're producing too much fluid or the deficiency where you're, um, you're weak and you know, you're not eating and your muscles are getting weak. So it brings your body back in balance. Oh, wow. Nice. And so uh, when, you, you know, when you try to describe holistic medicine to somebody, how do you define it for, for others so they can understand really what it means? describe it as medicine looks at the body as a whole so if a patient a dog or cat or even a bunny comes to see me with a condition you know you don't just say oh here's this dog and he has a lameness or he has vomiting that's his that's a disease that's a condition but you then you take a step back and you look at the pet and you say well what is your pet eating and what's your pet's um, environment like and what's your relationship in the family? Is this a pet that sleeps on your bed? Is this a pet that sleeps outside? What, does your pet have a job? Is there something that your pet does for the family that could just be providing support? Or my dog just goes and gets a meal every day, and that's what the dog does. And then we also take all the um, factors in what the dog is exposed to every day 
and even the emotions of the animal because the emotions are tied to organs in Chinese medicine and that's um, kind of thought to affect also the function of the organ. So we take a step back and we try to put everything together and instead of treating just the disease, we treat also the animal, the whole animal, um, to bring the body back in balance. Very cool. And so can you describe kind of some of the, um, the different aspects of, can you inform people what the different types of modalities and their like with chiropractic versus, you know, acupuncture, you know, um, can you describe some of the other different modalities within, uh, holistic medicine? Yeah. So, you know, we talked about acupuncture where we use acupuncture needles and certain points are proven to have certain effects on the body. And then there's chiropractic, which can be neurology based. And a lot of people think it's, you know, you have a bone that's out of place and we put the bone back in place, but we're really not doing that. Although you could think that we're doing that, but we're actually just affecting the whole nervous system of the animal by stimulating tiny muscles that surround the spinal cord and by affecting these little tiny organs, we could affect the nervous system by decreasing pain. Um, we could affect the immune system. Um, we could affect the, um, even the, the animal's um, nervous system. And it looks like we're bringing the pet in alignment. We're actually having an effect on the whole, the whole animal's nervous system and how the animal functions. And um, that's his massage, which is about the same as chiropractic, where we're massaging the organ, the organs and the muscles, and we're relaxing the muscles, we're putting your joints through range of motion, so that could be relaxing, and that's a way to, if we teach the owner's massage, that could be a way that they could bond with their animal, and also we could affect the nervous system by taking a muscle that's very tense and relaxing it, and then the dog could walk more efficiently because now we've made the dog more comfortable. Um, we can also just affect the dog's emotional health because, it, you know, you've had a massage, you come out, you're very relaxed, you're happy, you know, you feel yeah. like life is good when you've had yeah. a massage. Um, there's laser therapy that uses light energy to stimulate your mitochondria and that affects the local metabolism in certain areas. So if you have a joint that's painful or diseased, we could put actually energy right into the body to stimulate the body to, you know, heal the joint. Um, there's also homeopathy. That's another um, aspect of holistic medicine, which is there you have like versus like. So instead of giving an antibody or anti-inflammatory medicine, we also give, they, a person trained in homeopathy would give a tiny dilute portion of what's causing the disease to have your body learn how to process it or react to it. So that's a, a different way of looking at treating disease. And that is very effective if, if it's practiced correctly to treat diseases. Um, another popular modality is aromatherapy. You've heard of all the oils and essential oils right. that people use to treat disease. It can be very effective, but you have to know what oils to use and how to use them and be safe. Um, you talked about herbal medicine, and that is the same as aromatherapy, where you have to know your, your herbal formulas, know the herbs, know which ones to use for a disease, and get a good manufacturer that can make herbs that are very safe and effective. Um, 
also diet and food. You know, we, we look as food as something we just eat. We give our pets in their bowl, but we can also feed a pet more holistic foods, organic foods, foods that we know have a, an effect on the body. So instead of having to give them medication or give them an herbal formula, we could use a food item that would have the same effect. And as Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. Um, mm -hmm. So you don't have to even give your dog a medication if you use food, food therapy. Um, there's exercises. Some of the newer therapies now are ozone therapy, hyperbolic oxygen therapy, um, stone medicine, which is looking at the properties and minerals in certain stones and gemstones to treat pets. So you, you start with one modality, and as you can see, it just keeps going. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there are so many, which is great, you know, because again, so is there certain conditions that you feel like, so that acupuncture may be, you know, acupuncture kind of does really well for more, you know, maybe chronic type pain versus chiropractic. Maybe again, again, I don't know, but maybe for, you know, younger dogs who are kind of just a little bit more stiff or, or again, undergoing different types of conditions, you know, are these different modalities do you feel are better for certain conditions? They say the herbal medicine can help internal medicine conditions, acupuncture for moving chi or stagnation, or you talk about pain. Although you could still use acupuncture to treat internal medicine conditions. Its effects may just take a little longer. Um, it could also be what, re what resonates with you. You know, I, I, I enjoy acupuncture. I've taken a chiropractic course. I can do chiropractic. Um, some pets, you know, you could have a, a patient and you could try a few sessions of acupuncture and you could find the pet's not getting better. So then you could say, well, let's try something else, which that's what's good about holistic medicine. You always have something else you could try. So a lot of times the patient won't respond to the acupuncture. And then you would say, let's try something else. We could try laser. We could try chiropractics. Um, I worked with some practitioners who love chiropractic and that was their go-to. They would want to do chiropractic over acupuncture. And that was their choice because they felt more comfortable and they enjoyed chiropractic. But they knew if the patient wasn't, responding and they would know that they would do acupuncture so a lot of times it's what you enjoy the most as a practitioner but you also have to keep in back of your mind that you're treating the patient so you have to step back and and say well i enjoy acupuncture but the patient's not responding so let me bring another modality out of my toolbox as you know as they say to treat this pet or refer them to another patient who you know another doctor who could treat them where I've had a few patients where the acupuncture and herbal wasn't helping and the client didn't want to try homeopathy, which I'm not certified in, so I would refer them to a certified veterinary um, homeo, homeopathic practitioner that could help with their pet. Oh, very cool. And so how do you approach some of the more common conditions? And I know this is can be very varied, but how do you approach some of our, like, you know, especially this time of the year, we have so many skin and allergic dogs, you know, at this time, how do you approach some of those um, conditions? A lot of it, for the itchy dogs, a lot of times you look at their environment, you know, are they, we still go back to our conventional roots and talk about, are you treating the, the pet for fleas and ticks? Because that right. could be a big, you know, component of it. And also look at the environment. As a house call practitioner, we have the advantage of going to people's home and looking at where the pet sleeps, how, you know, what does her house look like, 
Um, are they keeping the home clean, using a HEPA filter? Do they use a lot of chemicals in their environment or, you know, dryer sheets, scented candles, or are they using a lot of natural products to clean their home that could have effect on the animal? And a lot of times they do talk about the animal's immune system, that they have other conditions that affect the pet so that they can't take care of their skin health because their energy is being taken care of diseases that are internal. And also, you probably heard this a lot from other practitioners, and it's also becoming mainstream where the gut is where your health comes from. So we also pay attention to diet mm -hmm. because food allergies or intolerances or medications can also affect the immune system. So it's not always one simple answer. You know, we have to treat the top layer of what is affecting the animal and then dig deeper to the underlying cause. What is your favorite study that like demonstrates um, like the incredible positive difference that, you know, holistic medicine um, has made for animals or maybe you want to give maybe some of your own experiences, but. There, there's one famous case, which I looked up, which came out in um, January, um, 2010. And that was where they concluded because at that time, you know, acupuncture is becoming more mainstream, but there wasn't a lot of case studies that published what the effects were and was it effective and did we prove it to be effective. So this case was published actually in the, um, the JAVMA, the Journal of American Veterinary Medical Association, and that proved that electroacupuncture in cases of dogs with intervertebral disc disease was actually more effective than having surgery, the decompressive surgery. So that was oh. a landmark where they proved that you don't always have to take your dog to surgery to treat the back disease. Um, you don't have to put them on medication and have them sit in a cage for four to six weeks that you can, also, you can go to a holistic practitioner, acupuncturist, and have acupuncture done and even electroacupuncture, and that can help your dog recover from the intervertebral disc disease. Very cool. And so when we do, uh, when you have chronic pain, what, what's the different ways that you guys approach, um, since you have so many different modalities, how do you guys approach chronic pain? Um, because I know that's really a big area that you guys have a huge impact on. Yeah. First, we, you know, we do an exam, you know, the whole physical exam. I do a regular exam, conventional exam. We also do a TCVM exam, which that looks at tongue color and pulse quality. And that relates to the condition that's going on in the animal. And then, you know, you have to, you have to start somewhere where you, you try to find out what's causing the, the chronic pain. But a lot of times, like I said before, it's like peeling an onion or someone said you're shaking the top layer off the rug where you treat the pet with acupuncture or chiropractic or laser. And you pick one modality to start with that you feel you know, that would benefit the patient you feel confident in doing to help the patient. And then you see how the pet responds. There's some animals where I've wanted to do acupuncture and then they didn't like having needles. <laughs> so <laughs> it was good. You know, I say, oh, I want to give you acupuncture. And the dog says, no, I'm not having it. And yeah. so then you have to rely on, okay, then we'll do chiropractic. Or, okay, you don't like that. Or you can't have that because you've had disc surgery. So now we could use actually electrical um, laser acupuncture or just using a laser and then um, 
it, it helps it helps to bring the body in balance. It helps to relax the muscles. It helps to decrease pain because we're stimulating the pathways neurologically. When we treat the pet locally, we cause local inflammatory mediators to come in. It relaxes the musculature. The pets feel pain relief because if their leg has been hurting or their back's been hurting, I don't know if you've had any conditions where your muscles just get so tight and you get so stressed from things hurting that your whole body tightens up. So just the acupuncture or chiropractor or laser just relaxes the pet. And along with the massage, it just relaxes the pet so then things can relax. And you can also get increased blood flow just because things have relaxed. And the pet feels better because endorphins are released and then they feel happier so they're not so stressed out about their pain. But also the modalities that we use they also send um, neurological stimulations up to the brain. And once when we stimulate the cortex, that also sends back feedback to actually dampen pain in the body. So it's the gateway theory where if you stimulate the, the lower, your legs, um, your back, spinal cord, then by stimulating the nervous system, we're actually sending down feedback to actually dampen pain. Very cool. And so how would you say, like how many, uh, how many sessions do you feel a lot of times do you, uh, again, this is really tough questions because it's really dependent on the case. Um, but for these, you know, these chronic pain, uh, you know, um, patients, do you, do you feel like, you know, are these like weekly kind of uh, visits, weekly sessions, um, if it's chiropractic or if it's, uh, you know, acupuncture, uh, how do sessions typically work and how many sessions and how long do you feel like, um, and do these, uh, do these cases, uh, how, how, how these outcomes come out? So we usually start with the initial evaluation, going through the whole history. A lot of times we're, we want to know everything about the patient, even if the client doesn't think it's important. We jot anything down that they say that's happened to the pet. And then we, I usually say to start with three to six sessions. The first one or two sessions, we're just getting the pet to relax and just learn what we're doing, that we're coming to see the pet. We're not going to hurt the pet. You know, I'm here to, to see the dog or cat or rabbit, and I'm here to treat the pet. And the pet has to learn, um, oh, she's coming here and she's going to do something, but I'm going to feel better after it. And about three or four sessions, the dog or cat figures it out, like, oh, this isn't going to hurt. I'm going to feel better. And changes can be seen. If we don't see anything within the first session, I tell clients to stick with it for three sessions, possibly six. If we go six sessions of acupuncture or chiropractor, we're not seeing improvement, then we should reevaluate, you know, what is a pet doing now? Why aren't we seeing improvement? You know, right. for why, what's going on, what's the underlying cause of what's going on. Do we have to switch modalities? Do we have to refer you to a different practitioner? Do we need to maybe get more diagnostic testing? Because there should be a reason why your dog's not responding. Right, right. And so do you feel like uh, in most, in a lot of your cases, are they, uh, you know, are, do you feel owners are looking more for like a cure or do you feel like it's more for like palliative um, type care? They do both. A lot of clients know that their pet has arthritis or hip disease. Um, I had a pet with kidney disease, so they know that the dog's not going to get 100% better. You know, we could get the pet feeling better, functioning better, but they know that, um, 
you know, we cannot, if your dog has bad joints, where there's increased bone production, um, the ligaments aren't 100%, you know, we can't cure that. But we can also, we can get your pet to just be more, I say usually happier and healthier. That your pet's going to move better, your pet's going to eat better, your pet's going to be happier, um, everything's going to function better. And then there's just benefits, like we talked about, emotionally dogs will be happier. If we fix the chronic pain, um, that maybe your pet didn't want to eat, now your pet's going to be eating better. I have a lot of clients that I've changed just a few things. You know, diet, a supplement, done a few sections of acupuncture, and the client, the clients call me and say, my dog's 100% better. It's great. They're just amazed at how much better their dog feels, and they're just so happy that their dog is feeling happy, and they just never knew that their pet could be, could be this happy. They, they thought that their pet was just getting older, they're slowing down, you know, it's a normal aging process, and then when they see improvement in their pet's condition, they're happier. Again, and how should owners look for, so owners who are looking for, you know, a, you know, alternative, you know, alternative means of, uh, of treatment and looking for a, a holistic veterinarian, you know, what kind of things, what, what should they look for, um, for, uh, for this type of veterinarian? What they could do is they could first ask for, um, you know, word of mouth, you know, ask their, ask their neighbors, ask their friends if they've had any treatments by a holistic veterinarian and ask where they've been seen because that they can learn from other people's experience. They can also go online to look up veterinarians on the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association has a list of holistic veterinarians. The Chi Institute has a list of graduates. IVIS, International Veterinary Acupuncture Society, has a list of graduates. I believe the veterinary... Um, Botanical Medical Association also has a list of her, you know, herbalists. So there's, so there's whatever modality, even the um, homeopathy. So whatever modality you're interested in, you could go look up on the website. And there, there is veterinarians listed who are members of that organization and are certified in your area for that modality. I've, I've asked a lot of clients where they find me. And, you know, they say that they Google me. <laughs> I guess Dr. Dr. Google is one way to find a holistic veterinarian, but then they see, you know, that you are associated with a certain, um, uh, um, like an association, and they found me listed on the association um, website. Okay, very cool. And so, and is that association one where again you've kind of had to go um, ones that have done like more um, type of research and more schooling? Is that is that one of the um, parts of the association that you're uh, a part of? Which, which one was that? So is this association one that you're associated with? Is this one um, that you've had to be, because you've done so much more advanced schooling, um, is, that the, is that part of that association as well? Yeah, yeah. When you join the association, I joined the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society. They ask you, what are you certified in? What, what patients will you see? Will you see dogs, cats, horses? And then what modality do you use or, and who's, who are you certified by? What school are you certified by? So and also the Healing Oasis um, Wellness Center who does chiropractic, they have a list of graduates. So, and they would say too, you know, what state are you in and what we do large animal, small animal, um, what else are you certified in? So a lot of them, you join the association and then you fill out a form that Ask, do you want to be listed online for a list of local practitioners? 
and then they list you by what mod what patient you'll see by species and then what modalities do you use so if someone looks my name up they'll find I could do acupuncture chiropractic herbal medicine but I don't do homeopathy so I wouldn't list that one okay and do you know is uh, uh, is human and animal holistic medicine very similar it's similar because we use the same things we use you know, it's acupuncture. You know, points are different um, between people and dogs and horses, which the points you learned are transpositional points. And people ask me what transpositional means. And it means that they transpose the points from people onto horses and onto dogs and cats because the anatomy is different. Um, there's chiropractic. You know, the same thing. The anatomy is a little different because we walk up on two feet upright and dogs and cats and animals walk on you know, their quadrupeds. They walk on four legs, and so the anatomy is different, um, and the function of the legs are different because you know our forearms are up, and our um, shoulder joints are a lot different than a dog's shoulder joint. It has to be weight bearing and bear sixty percent of their weight. Um, and people also take herbal medicine. You have to be careful knowing what toxicities are. Um, you know, people go to rehab. We get massage. You know, do Reiki. Um, I've learned a little bit of applied kinesiology, which is an energy medicine, and I kind of introduced my clients to it for muscle testing, and some people think it's crazy, um, you know, like UFO medicine, and then yeah. clients go, oh, I've had, I've had a muscle testing, I know exactly what we're talking about. So it, it does, um, it correlates, and then a lot of my clients are clients who have holistic medicine for themselves. And so they've had chiropractic, so they want their pet to have chiropractic. And they've had acupuncture, and they want their pet to have acupuncture. So they go with the modality that they've had, and then they say, okay, animals have this, and then they look it up for animals. And now should any, um, can any veterinarian, uh, you know, do holistic medicine, or do they need to have further advanced training to be able to practice holistic medicine? We should get training because, like I said, you have to be careful of the anatomy. You have to know what points to use. Herbal medicine, specifically, know what herbs you can use, what's toxic, what's formulas can you use because if you use an incorrect formula, your pet won't get better, but then also can have you know, just side effects and you know, can also worsen some of the conditions. So you should know what you're doing. Um, you know, this, is someone's, this is someone's family member. You know, it's not just a pet. And you would, if you went to see a doctor, we're considered almost specialists or certified in certain areas because we've gone to the advanced training. There are weekend courses for some of the holistic modalities, which should be an introduction, and you can learn a lot from a weekend course, but also to, to prove that you've gone the extra, the extra mile and you spent the extra time to actually learn enough about a modality to get certified in it to be tested, there's actually an exam where you have to, you know, identify 20 acupuncture points. You have to show specific chiropractic adjustments and an exam that, you know, they're, they're difficult for veterinarians, but it proves that you've gone the extra mile to actually study for the exam and actually pass it. Right. So you can show that I spent the time and I've done case reports and I spent my, time and energy um, and financial resources to say, I want to learn this enough to get certified so that you could come see me and I could treat your pet and know how to treat it and how, you know, and why to, why to treat your pet and then maybe not 
and why not to treat your pet with a certain modality. Excellent. Yeah. So I definitely think somebody uh, should have those extra certificates and extra schooling before they actually perform any kind of holistic medicine. That's great. Uh, Dr. Nisnik, thank you so much for being here to share with your, share us with your, your story and for sharing your knowledge and your expertise on, on veterinary holistic medicine. I'm so happy that we have you as a resource and a healthcare professional like you who have, have who has these wonderful options um, that can help all of our pets live better, healthier, happier lives. We've loved having you today. And I hope again, we get to talk to you more in the future. Thank you again so very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. And I'd love to come back. So I love uh, to talk about holistic medicine and alternative medicine or complementary or I guess what they call now the catchphrase, the integrative medicine. Yep, absolutely. We would, we'll definitely have to bring you back on. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. When we get back, I will reveal my product of the week. Stick around. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. It's time for our product of the week. Pets and their nails. Ugh. This is a very stressful area for pet owners because it's a necessary action that owners do not like to participate in. I can see the anxiety in pet owners about cutting their dog's nails for a variety of reasons. Because they are worried about cutting their dog's nails too close and their dog or cat will not cooperate with them. So that adds to the stress. And their stress and anxiety about cutting their pet's nails is then making the dog or cat more anxious about getting their nails cut Cutting nails does not need to be this difficult and definitely not this stressful. And it won't be if we take the time necessary to get our pets to learn to enjoy the process. So today's product of the week is nail trimmers. My personal favorite nail trimmers are well and good nail trimmers because they are lightweight, very easy to handle, and allow you to cut any angle easily to help cut around the quick. If you remember one thing from this talk, please let it be that there is a significant amount of prep work that needs to be done before you ever cut your pet's nails. You want your pet to be comfortable with you, touching their paws before you ever cut their nails. Give your cat or dog treats while you're touching their nails so they are used to you massaging their paws and have a positive experience. Then, once you have put in the time, every day I hope, and you can consistently touch their paws, then you can make sure they're comfortable with the clippers next. What I mean is every time they see the nail trimmers, they should have a treat or a toy and should be praised so they have a positive association with the nail trimmers. You should gently tap their nails with the nail trimmers so they are not reacting negatively when they see them. And so they get used to the nail trimmers touching their feet. If they associate the nail trimmers with treats, they are more likely to run towards you rather than away from you when they see those nail trimmers. Once your dog is okay with you touching his paws and comfortable with the nail trimmers, then you can attempt to cut his nails. But please do not cut all the nails in one day. This will just cause a significant amount of stress, so don't make this mistake. Just cut one nail a day, that's it. 
That way, your pet is hopefully eating a yummy treat and you just need to cut one nail. This way, you do not stress your pup too much and you don't stress yourself too much. I'm really just using today's product of the week segment as a brief tutorial because it's so important to be able to cut your pet's nails. It prevents lameness and infection, such as from the nails growing into the pads. There are so many great YouTube videos on how to cut your pet's nails, but basically you don't want the nails to go further than the pads. It can be very tricky to cut nails that are dark or pigmented because you don't want to cut the quicks as this can be painful and bleed. But if the nails are light, you can use a light source to help you find the quicks. So with good nail trimmers and with good preparation, you can have a pet with short nails that loves the process and is stress-free. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Elaine, Kyle, and Tim, and to my expert guest, Dr. Rosemary Nisnek. I wanna thank you, our amazing listeners, for your support, and please continue to give us feedback at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com, or download us on demand, or please rate us on iTunes. We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips to help you unleash your pet parenting power. Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.